The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Startup Canada's head office, located in Ottawa, is situated on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. Startup Canada recognizes the inherent and treaty rights of Indigenous peoples. We acknowledge the ancestral and unceded territories of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. Welcome to the Startup Women podcast. On the show today, we are thrilled to have Chelsea Howard and Mary Wildman. Chelsea Howard is our topic expert, and she's the founder of Drift Employer Brand Consulting. Chelsea is a workforce strategist partnering with companies from a range of industries to build human-centric culture and employee experience strategies. Chelsea's approach is grounded in authentic representation and real inclusivity to deliver value across all core drivers of the employee experience. With a decade of experience building employer brands, Chelsea creates employee value propositions as a tool to create powerful and authentic experiences. First and foremost, like recognize this as a critical issue that is facing our country right now and recognize your power and your influence in being able to do something about it. We're also joined by our featured founder, Mary Wildman. Mary is a First Nations Indigenous woman from Curve Lake First Nation. Mary is a motivational speaker and Indigenous influencer with a mission to advocate for Indigenous people and also help diverse groups become great allies and make an impact in our communities. Mary is a vibrant warrior who works to build relationships and form connections. She's spoken at various events throughout the years, including Move the Dial and Indigenous Peoples Day, and is a voice for mental health awareness and the child welfare system from an Indigenous lens. Um, honestly, we haven't made a lot of headway. To be honest, I would say it's really unfortunate. The only thing that has been positive is more conversation. But other than that, like no one's willing to do anything else. So it's pretty much, it's like, it's really kind of like, it, it's frustrating. Together, we're going to hear about Chelsea and Mary's lived experiences, entrepreneurship journeys, and focus on Indigenous intersectionality in the world of work. Welcome to the show, Chelsea and Mary. Thanks so much for having us. So happy to be here. 
We are so excited for today's conversation. Um, and I'd love to get a bit of background. I know you both know each other very well, but I would love to be in the know. Um, Mary, can you tell us about your entrepreneurial journey first? When did it begin? What has it been like? And what are you focused on right now? Uh, my entrepreneurial journey, um, I would say, kind of began over a year ago. I've done like public speaking for several years now on like various topics and I just really um, kind of wanted to shift from my career of what I was doing and I kind of just wanted to go out on a limb basically and just you know build my brand and put myself out there uh, build my website and yeah my website just launched um, at the end of October so that's technically so that's when my business was actually official so I'm yeah, I kind of just dove into it, really, not knowing like a lot, but I kind of had a vision of what I wanted to showcase for myself. And so far, it's been like a great experience and it's going along really well. Um, I've been fortunate to have a lot of uh, speaking opportunities lately and uh, with various uh, folks from different companies and universities and, you know, also like legal people as well. So it's been really it's been really good. Amazing. And what industry were you in pre-entrepreneurship? Uh, I was, oh, I've been around. I, <laughs> my last thing, um, my first uh, kind of corporate gig uh, I had at one of the major banks here in the GTA. I spent three years with them. And then I also worked for a university here um, in the GTA supporting uh, Indigenous entrepreneurship. So that's kind of, I guess, where you can say I got my toes wet was in there. And I just love supporting um, Indigenous women on all of their uh, ventures and ideas, I think was just really um, passion of mine. And then my last role was kind of in um, a bit of like a not-for-profit sort of uh, thing where I was, again, supporting... Um, uh, and Indigenous folks in the community, but also to help build a youth program to support um, Indigenous uh, people better find employment here in Ontario and their different needs and how we can go about partnering also different organizations to help just increase the overall um, workflow in our community. Amazing, Mary. Thanks for sharing that. Chelsea, over to you. Let's learn more about your entrepreneurship journey. How did that enter into your life and what are you focused on now with Drift? So uh, my entrepreneurship journey started when I was 13. Uh, that's when I started my first business uh, through actually a youth ventures program in my community. I grew up in a really rural outpour in Newfoundland. And it's funny that my first uh, entrepreneurial venture was uh, around kind of the exploration of my Indigenous heritage. Even back then, I had just started to uh, make connections with my ancestry and understand kind of where a lot of my ancestors came from. And I was doing a lot of, you know, self-exploration, checking out books from the library and, you know, looking at the various uh, representations of Indigenous culture. So I started uh, a painting business and I painted... Um, so they, they were the Dorset Paleo Inuit were the first peoples of Newfoundland. Um, so my business was uh, painting their kind of their animal spirits and gods on stones. And I called them Dorset spirit stones. And I sold them in uh, 
in um, uh, what do you call them, the tourist chalets and that kind of a thing around the peninsula. So that's when I was 13. Um, and then I took a break from entrepreneurship for about 20 years. Um, <laughs> well, like 19 years or something like that. So I spent uh, cut to modern day and uh, I, I moved here um, to Toronto over a decade ago. And I spent about 10 years in corporate HR strategy, bouncing around from industry to industry. I spent most of my time in the finance industry, designing employee experiences and kind of delving into more contemporary EDI and culture work. And I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I knew that that was that corporate experience was always a, a cutting my teeth in a way. Uh, and two years ago, I launched my company Drift. And I started with uh, kind of the building block of the EVP and employer brand. But over the past couple of years, I've had the opportunity to partner on a range of experience and workforce and culture strategies with my clients. And uh, the Indigenous focus is is really coming through strong, especially this this year. So it's kind of coming full circle, my entrepreneurship journey. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And and yeah, I find so many people on this podcast, they've had some type of business in their youth when they're younger that sort of sparked that ambition. Uh, so I love hearing those inception stories. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Indigenous entrepreneurship, identity, um, where we are right now, where we need to go as a collective, bringing in a lot of the corporate experience as well that you both have and seeing um, indigeneity in so many different structures and, and um, spaces. So to kick off the conversation, I'd love to hear from you both. How do you define Indigenous entrepreneurship? Are there definitions that are different for each person? Um, how do different Indigenous communities view entrepreneurship? And why are so many of these variations important to acknowledge? Mary, let's start with you. Um, yeah, that's a bit of a tough question. <laughs> but um, I, would, I would definitely, um, how do I define Indigenous entrepreneurship? I would really kind of look at it as... <clears throat> you know, kind of being able to be, you know, go outside of our comfort zone in a way, right? Like Indigenous entrepreneurship, I think, well, for kind of my community, um, from where I'm from, it's kind of something more newish, not a lot of entrepreneurs um, from my community so much. So I think that it's kind of empowering. So I think it's something like very empowering to be able to venture off as an Indigenous person with whatever idea that you're wanting to do for your business. I think that it's really just encouraging and it amplifies also Indigenous voices to kind of just make people more aware of like our culture you know, as a whole, I think is really important um, in terms of like um, Indigenous entrepreneurship, I think, from my standpoint, I think that's, that's kind of my opinion. Not sure what Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting question, right? Because Indigenous entrepreneurship, Indigenous entrepreneurship. There are a few different ways to think of it about it, right? I actually don't think there is a different definition for what an Indigenous entrepreneur is than what an entrepreneur is, right? An entrepreneur is somebody who is, you know, self-motivated, they see a gap they want to span, they have an innovative idea, and they make it a reality in order to disrupt what currently exists in some form. And I think that 
you know, there are so many incredible Indigenous entrepreneurs in Canada right now. Um, I think that the nuance and, and the important um, things to consider happen on the empowerment and the enablement and the amplification of Indigenous entrepreneurs, right? Indigenous ways of knowing and ways of working are different from our typical capitalistic North American ways of working and and knowing. So I think that the support that we extend to Indigenous communities, um, the support that we extend to Indigenous entrepreneurs um, and embedding more of those you know, indigenous pieces of indigenous cultural knowledge and indigenous ways of understanding and working and knowing um, into how we currently as a Canadian economy and as a Canadian workforce and, you know, employers of Canada, you know, uh, sponsor or champion uh, or encourage entrepreneurship. I think the lens on how we do it for indigenous communities. Like that is where it's really important to pay attention to how we're communicating and how we're enabling and empowering entrepreneurship for all Canadians, right? Because I think it's an interesting question because indigenous entrepreneurs need the same support and the same investment and the same enablement as every other entrepreneur in Canada. It's just within indigenous communities, typically their voices have been underrepresented and because they are not, you know, part of the post-industrial workforce complex of North America. They typically don't get the support in any in any area, really, in, you know, the workforce and employment and certainly in entrepreneurship. So I think we'll probably get into some of this in, in our conversation a little bit. But, you know, understanding cultural identities and finding new uh, innovative, I think, forward-thinking ways to invest in Indigenous communities and uh, support entrepreneurship. I think that's really the nuance to talk about when we talk about Indigenous entrepreneurship. Hmm, beautifully said. And and it is a bit of a trick question, to be honest, in looking at Indigenous yeah. entrepreneurship and, and so many yeah. of the, the inherent... Um, abilities and and the the focus areas of so many communities naturally being very entrepreneurial very resourceful um, you know the sharing of, of various goods and services and offerings um, there's there's so many different things that are naturally I think in, in the words that we would describe entrepreneurial that we see in, in indigenous communities um, and and I think of this this conversation often when we think of women entrepreneurs as well being entrepreneurs they're starting businesses but we often put women at the beginning of that statement and same thing with indigenous entrepreneurship. We say indigenous entrepreneurship. Um, is that empowering? Do we need to you know, shift that language? There's so much power in these words. And I'm, I'm excited about unpacking that a little bit more with both of you to get your perspectives on that. Yeah. Did you ever hear that joke? What, what's the difference between a pilot and a woman pilot? Tell us. Nothing. <laughs> that's it. That's exactly it. You were scared for a second about where that I was. <laughs> Well, and, and when we look at, you know, the role that, that cultural identity plays in the world of entrepreneurship and looking at the various intersectionalities that, that many of us have as well, and why why we need to both acknowledge those, those spaces, but also create potentially um, different supports that scaffold the experience of being an entrepreneur. Because everybody's coming from a different baseline, from a different experience that has access to different resources and support. Um, those conversations are different. 
why do you think that we need work, culture, and identity to really intersect and exist together? Maybe Chelsea, we'll start with you based on your work um, and actually working with various organizations to talk about all of these different dimensions of the human experience and, and how we discuss that identity space. Work, culture, and identity. We need them all to coexist. Well, I think that that is because we are rapidly, I think we're already there actually, but we're at a bit of a watershed moment in our workforce history coming out of the pandemic. And I think this, you know, all of this thought really started to evolve probably about 20 years ago. And we're just really starting to see the groundswell of momentum around it right now, where we're taking into account the entire individual, this ideal worker stereotype of the person who clocks in at 9am and clocks out at 5pm and does all of the things on their checklist and has no traumas or hopes or dreams that they bring into the workforce like that just doesn't exist. And we're starting to, I think, as a culture, understand a little bit more about what it takes to make people feel successful. And what it takes to make people feel successful is to be heard, to be listened to, to feel safe, to have leaders that inspire them and encourage them. And we're not going to be able to get there if we're just focusing on one aspect of that work culture identity. We're going to, you know, we're going to miss huge uh, swaths of, you know, what people are able to bring to the table if we only focus on their work or if we only focus on their culture or their identity. The other thing around this too, I think, the conversation is changing around how employers invest in their employees and I think how, you know, the economy in general invests in its entrepreneurs is, you know, just taking a much more intersectional approach in, you know, listening and learning from people who have different lived experiences and backgrounds and the ideas that they bring to the table, you know, like mm. the, the, the numbers are in, the results are in, intersectionality and inclusion and diversity leads to a stronger society overall. Respect for difference, respect for different voices, respect for every aspect of somebody's identity, and also just an understanding and a comprehension of the fact that people are more than just one thing. They're more than the work they do. They're more than their cultural identity or their gender identity. They're more than the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And if we can mm. open up the spaces where, you know, we are creating engines, economic engines to drive our workforce and drive our economy into the future. If we can open up space for identity and intersectionality and let that in, especially from an Indigenous lens, and I think we'll get into this, it's, you know, a huge part of the conversation around truth and reconciliation is how we bring Indigenous people into the mainstream conversation and hold space for, you know, every aspect of their identity. I think ultimately, <laughs> you know, those those three things that you mentioned, the work, the culture and the identity, hopefully we're getting to a point, I think, in our culture and society and economy where we don't have to talk about those things anymore because they're all equally as respected as core components of, of a person's ability to feel successful and, and feel heard and feel that they are contributing and they have a purpose and their passion is seen. Um, so that's kind of, those are my thoughts on, on those three components that you mentioned and how they're kind of, I think, transforming a little bit in our modern discourse about what it means to be an entrepreneur or a worker or an employer or whatever in Canada right now. 
Completely agree. Mary, why do you think we need to really look at the intersection of work, culture, and identity? Um, I would just really honestly second what like Chelsea said. It's really true that you just need to, you know, look at everyone as like their own like individual and what they can bring to the table. But also there needs to be more intersectionality because there hasn't been for a long time. Like there hasn't been, you know, there's been like several like conversations and like panel discussions where like you know people are afraid to like learn from each other from another like ethnic group you know rather than come together and see like the commonalities that we probably have or like the barriers that we may of like equally like face together instead of actually talking and having like these conversations it just hasn't happened so it's really important to just um you know, just go full force, be your true self and just make these conversations happen more often, I think is just beneficial. I love that you, you brought that up too, because that just tweaked on something as well for me. It's it's like the performative mm-hmm. aspect has to go, mm-hmm. you know, like if we're going to talk about identity, we have to have hard conversations. We have to feel uncomfortable. And until we're able to do that, you know, and sit with the the discomfort of really having a conversation about what identity means in the context of these different spaces, then I don't think we'll, we'll ever be successful in actually making it actionable to Mary's point. There's a lot of performance, not a ton of action right now. So I think we need to, as a country, work toward more of that action. Mm. And that goes beautifully, I think, Chelsea, into my next question, talking about true truth and reconciliation and what is missing, not only just from the conversations that we're having, but the action that's then resulting from those conversations. So exactly what, what you're both alluding to. What do you think, both of you, what do you think really needs to change um, either in the entrepreneurship space or in the corporate space or when we look at like investment in this entire um, uh, group? What role um, can business leaders play? What's needed? Like what action concretely would you recommend if you could wave a magic wand and we could change this whole sort of landscape? What would that be? Chelsea, kick us up. Me? Okay, I'll go. Um, And then I want to hear what Mary has to say because strong opinions on on this one. (laughs) So everything needs to change, in my opinion. Literally Great answer. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report had 94 calls to action, I think. Uh, I don't know if we can say we've made great progress on those. You know what I mean? Like, I I just don't think it's getting talked about nearly enough. Um, And I'll speak from my experience. So my business as an entrepreneur, I do essentially what I did when I was working inside corporate environments. I just do it for a range of companies now, which is to consult on human-centric workplace strategies that take into account intersectionality, that take into account people's identity and what is the best way to set our workforce up to success by honoring who they are as individuals. That's what my work drives. So what I can say is that there is still profound discomfort to talk in real terms about the barriers and the challenges that our Indigenous communities face just getting into the workforce, just getting that workforce participation number up. And then once they get into the workforce, the systems and the processes that keep them out of those, you know, like inner circles and keep them out of, you know, having that real trajectory 
towards success just because we have a fundamental misunderstanding at the core of our white North American institutions as to what it means to work in an indigenous community and what it means to come together and bring indigenous ways of knowing and culture into our workplaces and hold space for our indigenous communities and brothers and sisters. So when, when it comes to truth and reconciliation, Canada is not doing enough. Canadian employers are not doing enough. And it really starts with just, let's start with truth. How about that? Let's, let's start with the truth. Let's start talking about the uncomfortable truths regularly inside our organizations. And the people who are at the helm of these companies need to lead it and live it and make it a priority. And the folks who are in charge of designing strategies that will you know reach out to different talent communities and are kind of galvanizing their future workforce indigenous values need to be at the core of those strategies so right now we're not having enough conversations i saw a statistic it might not be completely accurate but it's pretty close it's something like 60 percent of employers still report that they are not connected with their local indigenous communities like they don't know who they are they don't know how to reach out i, I can probably get that metric like the the actual reference for you but mm. i'm very passionate about this because when it comes to reconciliation truth and reconciliation we've got the instructions we had the mm. inquiry we know what we need to do there's just this fear and um, anxiety around approaching the discomfort of the truth piece of it. That's what I feel, but I don't know. Over to you, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Take, the floor, Mary. Take the microphone. Yeah, so no, like to bounce off what like Chelsea said, like truth and reconciliation, like all these companies and like business owners and that they do, they need to get uncomfortable with the truth of what happened to our indigenous people. Like they have to acknowledge like what happened, you know, and like learn from it. Like this is like something that's like, you know, nationwide that's been made like publicly in that. And honestly, when we talk about reconciliation, an Indigenous person doesn't want to hear I'm sorry for like all like that you went through and the trauma like you know I get told that quite frequently from people like I'm sorry well no that's not part of reconciliation you know if if these companies and individuals want to do the right thing they need to start also by you know acknowledging the truth but also make space for indigenous people and actually create like jobs you know, for Indigenous people, because I'm noticing there's not a lot of jobs for Indigenous people. And like the ones that there are, there's few and like far between. And I don't understand. I, as far as I'm concerned, I've, I only noticed more ramp up of jobs after, um, you know, the bodies got discovered you know, like out, out, out in BC, that's mm -hmm. when it was like, all of a sudden, turn it on, like, you know, now we have to like, do something that's like a real shame, that that is like, how this all kind of just like started and like evolved and pushed like to the conversations that like we're having now. And it's just very frustrating, you know, um, as like an Indigenous person, just like seeing this and seeing the struggles that like my peers have you know trying to get jobs and um 
you know, it's like, it's really, it's really hard and like frustrating. And we just, we're not doing like enough to help support Indigenous people. So more people need to, you know, just get on the boat of, you know, learning, you know, reach out to somebody, reach out to like someone like myself, reach out to like Chelsea, you know, and like have these conversations. Like we got huge networks of people to like talk to and like learn off of. So I think that it's just, you know, it, we all have to just come together to like make, you know, Canada better because this is not the road that we want to continue going on. One where we don't like acknowledge the wrongs that have happened and are not going to rectify anything going forward, I find. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty fierce when it comes to, um, you know, supporting Indigenous folks. And I'm going to continue to support the Indigenous communities going forward because, yep, we're here and we're here to stay and we're not going anywhere. Absolutely. I just jumping off what you said, I, I had another thought around um, a conference, a micro conference I attended last year, and there was a, a bunch of different, it was around this, you know, uh, indigenizing workplaces. And uh, there were a few like key kind of themes that came out of it. And one of them for me was indigenous inclusion is not the goal. It's not, it, that's not the ultimate goal. I mean, it's, it's better it's better to use that phraseology than nothing at all. But that implies that there is something over here that Indigenous people need to be included in. Like that's not into. what we're going for. Mm, what we need to do so is good. dismantle, dismantle the old ways of doing things. Look inside, like Canadian employers, look inside your talent processes. Look at the bullet points on your job descriptions. Look at all of the different layers that you put people through just to get into your organization and ask yourself, who who created these and for who are they working for all Canadians right now? The answer is no, definitely not for indigenous communities. So from an economic perspective, truth and reconciliation can start to happen when we're willing to acknowledge that most of our Canadian institutions were built on fundamentally white North American values. And there are barriers in those institutions from the lowest level from the entry point to the exit point there are barriers for people who belong to indigenous communities and who have grown up on reservations and who have grown up in the child welfare system you know we need to remove those barriers that's when we can start to really talk about truth and reconciliation those are the important actions to take in this conversation you know to mary's point there is you know, dialogue and just having the conversation and educating yourself is the first step. But this goes so much further than just, you know, implementing, you know, or creating a landing page or having a sage smudge in the boardroom and saying, look, we, we celebrate Indigenous communities. It actually has to happen from the inside, from the guts of your organization. Mm, that's so important. And and it cannot just be uh, moments in time as well throughout the calendar of the year. You know, in June, you see a tremendous amount of storytelling and, you know, amplification of different businesses. And we say the same thing in February. Like we, we see these also trends in jumping on a conversation ba bandwagon from various corporates right. or, you know, across so many different segments. Um, but it's but interesting what happens when Canada Day rolls around, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting what happens. The mm -hmm. conversation kind of stop for a lot of, of organizations on Canada Day, and that is when they should pick up 
is around yeah. observances like that. So we we actually had that learning at Startup Canada a few years back as well in in changing our narrative around not celebrating Canada Day, but actually using that as a moment for education, talking about uh, you know entrepreneurship and and um, shifting the conversation on that day. And, and as a team, that was a really great moment to um, bring some awareness and in, into you know we're not just barbecuing and having hot dogs <laughs> on this day. Like we need to to reflect on what this actually means. Um, in in so many of these conversations, I see entrepreneurship being a huge potential um, economic driver for Indigenous folks, but also um, a space where so many things can be Indigenous led and and we can put more energy into that. And, you know, we do that with partnerships with Indigenous-led support organizations. How do we amplify their support in our community? Um, And in looking at the Indigenous entrepreneurship space, it's one of the fastest growing segments of entrepreneurship. We see a lot of growth across Canada in terms of export, in growing those businesses, um, in creating incredible products and services. Like we're seeing a lot of great traction there. But there's still a lot that has to be done in parallel to all of that institutional work, Chelsea, that that you're talking about in in um, in the dramatic changes that are needed there. Mary, what are the unique challenges that that from your perspective, Indigenous entrepreneurs continue to face in Canada, sort of compared to non-Indigenous entrepreneurs? What are the major differences that you see? Um, some major differences, I guess, you could start off with, like, well. I would say support overall is uh, a huge one, but also to like funding, like if you don't have funding to start your business, like that is really, um, that's crucial. And like, and like me, myself, I've applied for some grants and I, and specifically some of the grants that like I've applied for, um, you have to have like a status card or prove that like you're indigenous so but like and then I think well what happens to the indigenous people that aren't status but like need you know grant funding to start their business how are they supposed to like prove that they're indigenous so that I just think oh oh my goodness and it is it's really it's really hard because and there's not enough grant money um in where wherever pools the money comes from there's not enough to serve all indigenous entrepreneurs there's not just because there's since the pandemic there's been a huge influx of people starting their business so i find there's just not there's not enough and like not everyone can go get a loan like not Mm -hmm. everyone you know it's easy to say oh yeah go get a loan to like help start like your small business well you know what happens if you don't have good credit you can't like just go and like take a loan from someone to like start your bi- your business. So there are like these kind of like roadblocks that like are in the way as opposed to some people who may be fortunate not to have any or that are just, you know, able to just do something without, you know, um, having to have a lot of investment of what's going on. But that's kind of like my my key take on that. Yeah, I have an interesting uh, status story. By the way, you still need a card. Like you need to carry around a card that the government gives you. By the way, on those cards, it still says Indian status. I'll just say that. Wow. Yes, it does. And I had, I got my status um, uh, right around when I moved to Toronto, um, which was interesting because, you know, my my mom actually spearheaded it for our side of the family because a lot of Newfoundlanders are Indigenous and have, you know, status, but 
you know, have never been recognized for it. So mm. got my status card in the mail. I was excited because it is a legitimizing thing, especially for me, a light-skinned Indigenous person. I have to legitimize a lot. Mm. Um, and then the government rescinded it a few years later. So they removed, they took status away from, I think, tens of thousands of Newfoundlanders. The reason that they took mine away was because I had moved to Toronto to pursue my studies. Really? And I was no longer living on or in and around the Port-a-Port Peninsula, which is where my band is located. So they, I, they asked me to prove that I had visited there regularly by sending like airline stubs and things like that to prove that I had gone back and visited it and then prove that I was contributing to the community in some sort of tangible way. So I went through the process of appealing it. I did provide airline stubs. I wrote an essay about how my work in my master's, which was true at the time, my master's thesis was about um, the historic relationship of Indigenous and First Nations Canadian with the mass media and how they've been misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And I was working at the, uh, at the time it was Ryerson, now TMU, Aboriginal Student Centre. So I wrote all of this and they still took my status away. And there's a massive class action suit happening now in Newfoundland around that because so many other people were impacted. I'm not part of that class action but this is the kind of stuff that's still happening to Indigenous people. And as you heard Mary say, like having that card is you have to legitimize yourself in order to get funding a lot of times or get entry into programs and, and you know, continuing education and all of this kind of thing. So that right there is a massive barrier to any kind of success. Mm. That's fascinating, Chelsea, and thank you for, for sharing that experience because I think it just demonstrates it, it's there's so many levels of bias and hurdles, but this is an institutional um, structure that that is so it's fascinating because even the word status to prove your ancestry or to to you know provide uh, proof points to something that you were born with like it, it's the, such a the colonial government of Canada gets to define on you as Indigenous. Ugh, don't get me started. Yeah, well, <laughs> but you know, on, on all of these different elements, like if we're talking about action and not just having conversations here, this is a perfect example and experience of a barrier preventing you from being able to do incredible work and and not be bogged down in bureaucracy. Why why focus on that when you know there's so much other important work that needs to happen? Yeah, exactly. um, that's a fascinating example. And so Chelsea, building on other experiences that you've had in, in your wide variety of corporate experiences and in entrepreneurship as well, what, what positive changes have you seen um, happen over the last couple of years or things that you would identify as progress going into the right direction? Have you seen that be more tangible in the last couple of years? Are there any sort of success stories or, or case studies that you could point to, to give some inspiration to some of our listeners? So it's tough, right? Yes, obviously there is forward momentum. I think that, you know, I, it's, it's hard because you want to bring awareness to the real issues and barriers, but you also want to lift up and amplify the incredible success stories that are happening. Like there is a lot of hope and a lot of forward motion that is being driven pretty much 100% from the Indigenous communities with mm. very little support. So can you imagine you know, with more investment and more support, the incredible, you know, forward momentum we're going to be able to see. I honestly think that um, the biggest 
success and the thing that I take the most heart in is the, the uh, making mainstream of hard conversations, mm. you know, the, the coverage that we're seeing, that was actually my postgraduate studies were, were, it was all around researching how the Canadian mass media has made an absolute mockery out of indigenous communities, you know, mm. up until like the past five years. I mean, I dissected a ton of examples, but you know, when the land claims disputes are going on, they're painted out as, you know, um, Right, like a, a miscellaneous native group, like hindering progress. Like these are the, the types of stories that were told by the Canadian media. And now we're seeing a shift into actually publicizing and through the voices of, you know, indigenous journalists and indigenous content creators, we're seeing the story stories come out of the community and they're not, you know, enjoyable stories to listen mm -hmm. to. They're really hard and harrowing as they should be. But, you know, you look across like on Crave, for instance, there was an incredible documentary called Thunder Bay that just dropped this past year. And every Canadian should watch it because it talks about the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. And it talks about the lack of action. And yes, those things are still systemic barriers. And we definitely haven't made nearly as much progress as we should have on those. But I think the conversations that are happening, and I am seeing people be more willing to put themselves in those uncomfortable spaces um and i think that that is probably the biggest shift that i've seen and it's taken 12 years you know i've been in this space working in this space for 12 years and it can still feel like you're screaming into the void sometimes so i think you know the amplification and the featuring of real indigenous narratives and voices and telling the stories and sparking the conversations that is where we're making the most progress and i think that will be the fuel that we need to drive the the actual change but i'm interested to hear what mary has to say because i know mary and i have talked about many of like i hope it's okay for me to say mary yep. but your experiences have highlighted a lot of the barriers that exist and I get angry and frustrated sometimes hearing about some of the things that you have had to go through. So I think I have a very privileged perspective for sure in a lot of ways. Um, and I certainly don't want to speak for, you know, the indigenous population of Canada in any way, because I know that while there has been progress and momentum, there is still like, we are still very much at the beginning of this journey. Mm hmm. Yeah, Mary, what are your thoughts on on where people need to be putting energy and adopting based on any of the successes that you may have seen in the community? What, what's your kind of key recommendation? Um, honestly, we haven't made a lot of headway, mm -hmm. to be honest. I would say it's really unfortunate. The only thing that has been positive is more conversation. I guess, like Chelsea said, making people feel um, uncomfortable um, but other than that, like no one's willing to do anything else. So it's, <laughs> it's like, it, it's really yeah. kind of like, it, it's frustrating. But you know, I think yeah. I was sorry to cut you off, Mary, but just building on what you were just saying, I actually think that it is almost a hundred percent out of the indigenous community that the change is happening, right? Yeah, like it's point. their voices, it are, it's their platforms, it's their power. It's their, the warriors like Mary is, you know, to really kind of tell your story and force people to listen. That's mm -hmm. where the progress is happening. Now we need 
someone to take up the charge on the other side, I think. Mm -hmm. Because I think like it will take people to hear um, actual like Indigenous lived experience, like through like certain situations to actually um, impact people and shift kind of their mind a bit and go like, oh my God, did this actually happen? And they need to actually hear it like from like someone, right? That, but, but also like hear their story, like where they came from, you know, and where they are today, because a lot of people have been through a lot as Indigenous people. And like we've, there's been so much trauma, like done, like uh, intergenerational trauma and even like, you know, still like trauma, like it, it's crazy. Like just the things that are still done here in our country is like crazy. Like residential schools still over with, right? Uh, the era is over with, but like, it's not because the child welfare system exists. And that's one of the things that I talk about. You know, I share my story, like, you know, proudly about that. And I think people need to hear that. Like people need to hear what actually still happens to Indigenous families like even off reserve, it doesn't just happen. Like people have like an idea that this just happens just on reserve. No, it can, it happens to like indigenous people that are like, you know, living like through the GTA or wherever, like it still happens. And people just have like, just such this like racist lens when it comes to like indigenous people. And it's very like frustrating. It's frustrating mm. that they think that like we're all the same and like mm. that we can bring like no value to society is basically, you know, how I feel. So that's why I've kind of made it my mission to kind of, you know, bring down all those doors of like how people view us because, you know, like there's no more, no more mm. of this. No more. No, that's a, an important point. And, and I love how both of you have um, picked up on this like, let's not pat ourselves on the back for something that is not like, quote, fixed. Like we have not made enough progress. We need to not stand in these moments of celebration. Like there's still so much more we need to do. And this is not success. Yes, we need to like have these hard conversations and continue um, through that uncomfortability and and make sure that that's still present in every type of structure that we live in. Um, But we are so far away from being in a space that indigenous folks are respected, that spaces are being held for those folks, um, and and that we're not tokenizing a handful of success stories in entrepreneurship as well. Like I see that all the time, that there's a handful of Indigenous founders that are often the poster children of the success of the investments in the entrepreneurship space. Like That is also not serving us. Um, and diversifying those voices truly from all spaces across Canada, um, that's a really important part of this element as well. Yes, we can have conversations, but we need to be having even more diversity in those perspectives and conversations that comes into that. Yeah, for sure. Totally. So I'd love to, I mean, we've been talking a lot about actionable advice here, actually, Um, but really honing in on this for our listeners who might be struggling, like, how do we actually get there? What approaches should we be implementing? What supports are available? What resources can we point to? Um, And Mary, you describe yourself as this vibrant warrior working to form and make relationships with different types of companies and organizations and brands. How do you approach making those connections? What's your relationship building process look like? Uh, for me building relationships, I would literally say that I use LinkedIn 99% of the time, uh, to meet people. Now I don't just wait for people. 
<laughs> I, I don't just wait for people to come to me either, even though some people um, have heard about me through word of mouth. But usually what I do is I will kind of see, um, kind of like go through LinkedIn, see what people are kind of, you know, supporting like Indigenous people and kind of like connect that way. And I will just send them like a note and introduce myself. That's usually how it is, because the worst thing someone can do is say no, that they don't really want to engage with me. But that's usually um, my main source of like how I um, speak with people usually. My main, yeah, my, my main platform that I use anyways. <laughs> That's good. Well, and, and that's exactly how I came across you, that you reached out and, and that was such a great moment of, of um, you know, finding a new entrepreneur, finding a new leader, because obviously we talk to a lot of folks every single day, but it's it's really helpful. Um, not that you should be having to <laughs> pop or land in my DMs, but um, it was really helpful for, for you and I to connect. <laughs> Amazing. And Chelsea, I want to ask uh, another question that we haven't really covered so far, f- so far um, around the preservation of Indigenous culture and, and those values being integrated into business practices and the benefits that can potentially bring. I know this is something that, that you talk about often. Um, walk us through how that um, preservation of Indigenous values is, is embedded into your work. Well, I think uh, first and foremost, it's a it's a it's a bit of a case by case basis, right? You have to look at. So, my first, uh, if I was approaching this uh, in like a client context where I'm advising a client and I'm working with a client, it has to start with understanding what the current state of your organization is and how present, if at all. Are any kinds of you know of indigenous ways of knowing or indigenous cultural knowledge? Like, is any of that you know being you know is that is any of that a part of your organization right now? And then you know a, a subsequent analysis to do is you know how informed are your most senior leaders? How informed is you know your workforce in general? Like, how do you operate right now? Because then that gives you a baseline for. Okay, are we starting from ground zero? Absolutely no understanding of First Nations and Indigenous culture. Or are we starting from a place of there already has been some work done here and there are some inspiring Indigenous leaders in the business and we have somewhere to start from? Because mm-hmm. that's really going to dictate your approach to this. It's something that if you are one of those organizations that is just a purely um I guess, like white North American, like we're set up in a hierarchical bureaucratic way and all of our senior leaders are white and we're working on doing better, but like we're not there yet. That is a much longer roadmap to cultural understanding than if you have already naturally, you know, as an organization started to embed this and you have that diverse, inclusive, equitable approach to your workforce and your leadership. And you have, like I said, indigenous knowledge keepers within your organization already. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they are in positions of influence and they are given a voice and a platform within your organization. And if you don't have those things and you're at ground zero, you need to get those things. Mm -hmm. And then we can start talking about, you know, interweaving and embedding and dismantling processes. Because if you don't have those things, you're going to come up against roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. If you have no leadership at your organization who is at the very least an ally to indigenous communities, 
communities, nobody's going to understand it because it's not convenient mm. for them to understand because they mm. are existing right now in an organization and a structure and an institution that was created by people who look like them for exactly. people who look like them and live mm. like them and think like them. So everything's very convenient and great for them at this point. Mm-hmm. So until you're able to move the dial on those core pieces, indigenous leadership, a fundamental understanding and respect for diversity and inclusion as an organization, um, you know, the, the dialogues are, are happening and are already a part of how we do business. Get yourself there and then we can talk about how we disrupt your organization and bring indigenous ways of knowing at the core. Hmm. And what does that look like at a smaller scale? Like a lot of, you know, founders that are listening to this podcast, they might be a solopreneur, they might have one staff, they might not have this, you know, leadership board or, you know, they, they might not have any other staff to sort of point to. How do they bring this conversation, culture, values, et cetera, that perspective? What do you do when you only have one or two people? Reach out to uh, indigenous knowledge holders in our community. There are so many incredible organizations that support this kind of knowledge. The Gore Downey and Cheney Wenjack Fund, they are, that is all that they do is they educate and they share and they talk about the issues and they have programs to help any size of business or any size of organization bring Indigenous cultural knowledge into the way that they work. So reach out do a Google search, look for it, find it, reach out and have a conversation. That's step one. And then make it a priority. I think you said, Kayla, something a little earlier about it not being a moment in time thing. Make sure that those those conversations are having on an ongoing basis. When you're thinking about, you know, even if you're the smallest startup and you're thinking about your customer base and how to go out to new markets, like, consider the Indigenous lens, consider Indigenous communities. And I think that, you know, at the core of all of this, um, and going back to to Mary's, you know, kind of the who, how you identify as an entrepreneur, you know, as vibrant warrior building relationships, like that is core. Relationships are core. It can't just be a one conversation and oh, like that was nice, and then I spoke to somebody, and now I'm now I'm good for the year. No, it mm-hmm. has to be an ongoing commitment to heightening and strengthening your own understanding so you can bring it into the way that you work. Like that's where it starts is you have to, you have to want to know it and you have to be brave about the way that you go into it and you seek that knowledge because it's not, it's not our indigenous brothers and sisters and communities responsibility to come and educate you. You have to reach out and want it and commit to it. And there's lots of things that you can do, but community organizations are a great resource. And there's just so many of them in here, here in Toronto, coast to coast, you know, there's so many resources for you to avail yourself of. Agreed. And nationally, you know, there's folks like NACA, the National Aboriginal Capital Corporations Association, a great partner of ours, CCAB, um, also the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. I know the acronyms can be tough sometimes, but there's incredible national entities and the whole network of Aboriginal financial institutions are there to the funding point uh, that Mary mentioned earlier. Funding is always such a challenge, but there's a really robust network of financial institutions that are also there. Mary, I want to ask you a question about your time when you were working at, sorry to like hijack this, but I just on this part, Go for it, Chelsea. I love it. Take you, it. Mary, you worked at the, um, the in within the, uh, was it the TMU, the fashion program and digital yep. fashion? Yeah. So like that must have been 
interesting because a lot of people who go into fashion are kind of entrepreneurially minded and that kind of thing. So I just wonder, like, what did you observe? Like, what was that like for you working with that group? Uh, For me, it was really like eye opening because that's kind of really where the they really piqued my curiosity in terms of entrepreneurship then because obviously I hadn't had my business even though I was doing public speaking but it was kind of amazing because a lot of it um it was solely women that were in the program but it was really amazing to be able to connect with the different indigenous backgrounds across Canada and everyone was doing something different like some were in like the jewelry of creating like beadwork and like earring pieces some were doing like clothing and some were doing sustainable um clothing but also like it was really like good to see that and also like Shopify was our partner at the time so it was good to be able to help teach them to build their website on Shopify as well you know and kind of just they got really good um a good overview kind of of what it's like to kind of start and get like that knowledge with like working with um the different uh staff at tmu i thought was really good and like there was like lots of culture like in there like when we would come together we'd bring in guest speakers like from the community and stuff like that so it was always like really good it was an awesome like safe sacred space i would definitely um yeah I, I, I love that position. That was a great position that I had. <laughs> and what was the program? Oh, it's uh, with the Indigenous uh, Fashion uh, Support Program over at TMU. I believe, yeah, I believe it's still in existence right now. Um, still, because um, um, I was there uh, almost two years ago. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, that's an industry where... Uh, indigenous creators are like dominating I think is is the uh, Canadian fashion and like arts arts community it's Mm -hmm. just there's so much great entrepreneurship coming out of the um, the indigenous space there I think Mm, agreed and so much export potential as well like when we look at those businesses scaling uh, there's such creativity and such unique business structures and products that are being created like that's an incredible way to uh, both share culture and knowledge and history through products that are physical and and symbolic. So I love seeing those types of products. And to our listeners, that's an easy thing you can do today. Go find an indigenous founder and buy their incredible stuff. (laughs) Use your purchasing power. Yeah, 100%. So are there any other recommendations around mindsets? We've we've sort of talked about that throughout today's episodes when it comes to leaders, when it comes to entrepreneurs um, and and leaders bigger in big organizations and in small. Um, are there any other mindsets that you want our listeners to sort of take away to change, to adapt, to challenge, make themselves uncomfortable, um, to really create more inclusive employee experiences or workplaces? Chelsea, is there anything that we haven't covered so far? I think we've we've covered a lot of it. Um I think just the one thing to keep in mind is that this does have to come from you. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has to come from a place of deep caring and deep understanding and a commitment to making things better. Um, At the end of that Thunder Bay documentary, uh, the, the creator, the, the documentarian who is, you know, an Ojibwe journalist he said that, you know, it, it can't just be us. It can't just be us, the First Nation peoples of Canada who wake up with this like hot fire of injustice inside of us. Like we have to, we need help. We need everybody. So I think 
first and foremost, like recognize this as a critical issue that is facing our country right now and recognize your power and your influence in being able to do something about it. Hmm. I love that. And Mary, do you have any final kind of call to action or words of advice that you want to leave our listeners with? If that's something that we can do as entrepreneurs, as support organizations, um, to really make entrepreneur more, entrepreneurship more inclusive, um, what would be your call to action, Mary? Um, my call to action would definitely be just reach out and build a relationship like specifically like you know that's what I'm here for like for my business right like my business is like consulting but I also do like public speaking as well like on a variety of um, indigenous topics and issues so like for me it's kind of like in my wheelhouse this works so I wish more leaders would kind of see the value in someone like myself to reach out to and have the conversation with because I'm here you know and I'm and I bring great value to any organization or company or like individual uh whoever you may be but that's kind of where where can people find you where's the best place to reach out to you to build that relationship oh yeah so absolutely so absolutely outside of LinkedIn find me on LinkedIn (laughs) find me on LinkedIn um or else I have my website which is I am marywildman.com so uh, yeah you can find me on either two of the places and I will respond promptly usually I love that. Probably, usually. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. And Chelsea, do you have any final call to action? Any resource shout out, organization shout out, uh, business owner shout out, anything you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, go read the 94 calls to action. Just go read through that report and immerse yourself for a little bit in, you know, the the knowledge and understanding around it. Um, and, you know, kind of get curious about it for your own purposes and then start to have those conversations. Um, cause that's, that's really, that is the starting point for anyone who hasn't gone into this space yet. The starting point is to educate yourself and then have the conversation and reach out to a Mary or reach out to, you know, the Cheney Winjack fund or reach out to literally anyone and don't, like, don't let your anxiety around broaching this topic keep you from having the important conversation. Mm, that is the post-it moment from today's episode. That is beautiful, Chelsea. That is great. <laughs> and I say post-it moment. It's always like, what's the sentence I would put on a post-it to put on my computer to come back oh. to often? That is my, yeah. my sort of post-it moment of today's episode. And where can people reach out to you, Chelsea? Oh, uh, driftemployerbrand.com or LinkedIn. Amazing. There you go. We got some great connections that can be uh, in the making. That's fabulous. And if I can add another secondary um, uh, thing to read after today's episode, Indigenomics, Taking a Seat at the Economic Table by the incredible Caroline Hilton um, is also a fantastic read. Um, so definitely recommend adding that uh, to, to your um, prospect list to, to you know your... That. <laughs> library books, etc. Uh, it's a fantastic read. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea and Mary. This has been a really important episode. And I really appreciate you both sharing your stories, sharing a really incredible perspective and some valuable actions that all of our podcast listeners can take away from today. It's been awesome getting to know you both. Uh, and I can't wait to keep in touch and see where, where you both go next together and separately. Um, this has been super fabulous. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.